And for those of you who are utilizing our children's ministry, we run that through the first grade. You're most welcome to take your children back there now. For those of you who, whose children stay in the service with us, they are most welcome here. We love having children in the service with us. Just um, as you can hear, this is about the level I'm going to be able to stay at this morning. And so um, for those of you with children, just just by way of reminder, if they get a little fussy, that's okay. Just take them out for a few minutes, get them settled, bring them back in. Dads, especially if you're able to do that to serve your wife, to serve mama, that will be great. And I will attempt to preach over any of the the noise. But we've been going some time now through our confession of faith, the London confession of faith. And the confession should be in the pew in front of you. We've been looking now at um, chapter 9 for a while, which deals with free will. And I'm going to read our, <clears throat> our last um, section, our last paragraph of that to you. And it talks about this coming day, okay? So this, this, this eschaton that we're, this, this end, this telos that we're moving toward where we receive our glorified bodies. It says, only in the state of glory is the will, our will, yours and mine, made perfectly and unchangeably free toward good alone. And so those of us who have been rescued right, from the dominion of sin uh, in, a, in our confession uh, each and every week when we come and confess our sin and we are reminded of who we are in Christ, we know very well experientially that though we've been rescued from the sin's dominion through the shed blood of Christ, we long for the day where we're we're free from the presence of sin, right? We're free from wrestling with our uh, our own um, sinful, uh, uh, the, the remaining corruptions that are in us. And so it's good for us to be reminded that there's a day coming where Christ returns and he puts all of that away. Amen? If you have your Bibles with me, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark chapter 10 what we're beginning this morning. I told the elders, one, I'm very thankful for our elders who I can send a message out on Saturday and say, hey, I'm not talking really well right now. Can you help me out? And these guys just step right in place to help us um, with our service. So thank you, brothers, for being able to step in. But uh, I told them this morning, I think that, you know, uh, it's the Lord's will that I preach the sermon this morning. Otherwise, Someone else would be standing in this pulpit. Um, but also, I think the, this is a, a topic that the enemy would not like me to preach about, which is why I can barely speak. Uh, and so uh, the, the topic this morning uh, is, is dealing with marriage and with divorce and, uh, and sexual immorality. And so it's a serious topic. And for those of you with little ones, they're, they're, I'm, uh, you know, no, nothing that is... Uh, uh, course or crass that I'm going to talk about, but I am going to use words as it relates to sexual immorality. And so this is more of a, just a public service announcement about that. So you can discern what's appropriate and, and what you would rather them hear at a later time. But let me read the first 12 verses here, and then I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in. John Mark, he penned these words under the inspiration of the Spirit It's preserved for us this morning where the Lord says this. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God is joined together, let not man separate. Verse 10. 
in the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to spend time together as a church family in your word. And God, to think about for a few minutes this wonderful gift called marriage that you've given us. And God, how it reflects the relationship that we have with Christ, who is our faithful husband. So Lord, help us to be a people that hold marriage in high esteem because we hold you in high esteem. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Well, so in our text, we, we see we've, we've left what I think to be Peter's house, right? We've been in Peter's house for much of chapter nine. And we're in the region of Judea. And, and by now, we're used to seeing multitudes gathering wherever Jesus went, okay? He's popular, and that's exactly what we see happen in our text this morning. Jesus comes to the region in Judea, and multitudes gather around him. And our text says, as again, we're familiar with this, that Jesus, as he was accustomed, he taught them. Right? So Jesus had this public teaching ministry, uh, and he, he never neglected an opportunity to, to instruct not just his apostles, but to instruct the multitudes as well. Now, at some point, either during or after the, the, whatever it is that Jesus is teaching, perhaps something to do with marriage, um, you know, is, I think that may be what provoked this question in some way. But we see something else that we've uh, grown to be familiar with, which is a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day, primarily the Pharisees, right? These authorized religious leaders. And they come up and, and they ask him a question. They ask Jesus a question. <clears throat> but it's not just a question, that they're asking, right? And we know this because Mark gives us a bit of commentary. He interprets the motive of the Pharisees for us in this passage. Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he, he wants us to know that the Pharisees weren't just asking Jesus a question so that they might have greater understanding, but they were asking Jesus a question so that they could test Jesus, okay? They were testing him. And we see that word used right in verse 2. So they were in a sense, putting Jesus on trial. And, and this was a, this was a, <clears throat> a one-question test, okay? Just one question. And the test is this. The question is this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That's the question. Okay? Now, I'm convinced this is a test in at least two ways. And, and both, of these can, <clears throat> both of these ways can, can show you the, um, the, the, the sinister motive behind the Pharisees asking of this question in the first place. The first, and I think primary reason they asked Jesus this question, is because Jesus at the time was in Herod and, and Antipas' uh, his, his, his jurisdiction, he was in the jurisdiction of Herod when he was asked this question. If you remember, Herod uh, uh, Antipas, he had John the Baptist beheaded over this very issue. We saw that back in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. John the Baptist, he made it clear that it was not lawful for Herod to divorce his wife and marry his brother's wife, to take her as his own wife. So I, I think the Pharisees were attempting to trap Jesus, hoping that he would have a similar fate to that of John the Baptist, especially in light of, if you remember how closely their ministries were associated with each other. And, and this goes to show you the political nature of Christianity, right? What the Bible says about something like marriage 
it gets you into trouble in today's culture, doesn't it? All right, well, the same thing was true during the time of Jesus, right? John was beheaded for speaking what's true about marriage, which means that he was speaking what is true about God, right? God invented marriage. And as we'll see in a few minutes, marriage, again, it, it, it preaches a grander, or preaches about a, um, a grander, more glorious marriage. So the state, you know, the government, no matter how much it kicks and screams and throws tantrums, right, it has no authority to redefine a God-ordained institution. Right? The state is not God. It's accountable to God. And those who serve in such a way as to degrade God's natural order will give an account. Romans 13, right? governing authorities are deacons, diakonos. We're not God either, are we? Right? No matter how much we may kick and scream and throw temper tantrums, God alone defines marriage because God invented marriage. We're not authorized to change and to play fast and loose with words and definitions. And, and we'll see that in the way that Jesus ultimately answers the question of the Pharisees. So we see the Pharisees trying to place Jesus on a collision path with Herod Antipas, with his kingdom, if you will. The second part of this test <clears throat> is that I think they're seeking, the Pharisees are seeking to pit Jesus against Moses. Okay, one of their revered prophets. They believed that Jesus and Moses were at odds with one another. In fact, I think they try to drag Jesus into what was a theological controversy of the day, and it had to do with how one interprets Deuteronomy chapter 24, the first four verses in that. And I'm going to read that to you, and we should have it up here on the screen. It says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. Uncleanness is a significant word. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she's departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of her house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as a wife, then her former husband, who divorced her, must not take her back to be his wife after she's been defiled, for that's an abomination before the Lord. Now, a few things about this passage in Deuteronomy that's important for our passage here in Mark. First, Moses' instructions prevent a hasty divorce. In other words, this wasn't a description of what marriage is supposed to be. Rather, this was prescriptive in light of the fall, okay, in light of sin. And in, and in many ways, it gave some cover, it gave some protection for a wife. The desertion of one's wife, a, a man deserting his wife, was apparently becoming more common <coughs> amongst the people of Israel because of the, the, the hard-heartedness of man. In other words, marriage was not held in honor as it should have been held in honor. So Moses, in his instructions, created a certain procedure that one had to follow. Okay, this means the, the man had to stipulate a legitimate reason for divorce. He, he couldn't just divorce his wife for any reason. Again, this provided at least some form of protection for the woman in the midst of a people that were becoming more impacted by pagan ideals of marriage than Yahweh's idea for marriage. And if we think that we're far removed from that hard-heartedness, and I don't think that anyone in the, sitting in the pew this morning would say that we're not above it, right? All we have to do is look at the state of things in our society at large to see the state of how one views 
marriage and the sacredness of it or lack thereof. So we see Moses putting a process in place in the midst of a culture in which divorce was as easy as just disregarding one's wife. Okay. Secondly, we see in Deuteronomy that the acceptable reason for divorce given by Moses was that word I pointed out to you in the text. It was uncleanness, that word uncleanness. Now, what does that word mean? Right? That, that's where the debate ensued. That's what Jesus was being drawn into by the Pharisees ask, asking them that question. Now, uncleanness is different from adultery. Uncleanness is different from adultery. The reason that we know this is the case is because under Levitical law, adultery was punishable by death. Quote, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. So, There's no need for a certificate of divorce for adultery because you would have been given the death penalty for it. So what is in view by that word uncleanness? Again, it's something different than adultery. It's something different than adultery. Now, at the time of Jesus' first advent, the Jewish people agreed that divorce was permissible. But there were two different thoughts or two different interpretations as to what constituted a lawful divorce. The more conservative view came from what was called the uh, Shami school. They argued that the only thing that would justify divorce was adultery, okay? Anything other than that, the couple had to stay together no matter what, all right? The Hillel school was considered the more liberal school, and they took a very broad interpretation to that word uncleanness. One commentator says regarding their approach, they permitted permitted divorce virtually on any ground. Anything that a woman, and and, and again, this is the nature of the culture at the time, It it was the man divorcing the woman, Okay. That anything a woman did that embarrassed, disgraced, or merely displeased her husband would have been considered grounds for divorce in this school of thought. Now, so in, in light of that, by the way, just husbands being able to divorce their wives or that being the prevailing thing, you could see even in Deuteronomy the radical nature of Moses trying to provide cover for the wife and preventing a man from divorcing his wife for just any reason. And you'll, you'll see that all throughout the Bible, just the recasting of, of women and the re, re, uh, reasserting of the Imago Dei and the value of women and the value of children, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Now, the prevailing view of the time, uh, during the time of Jesus, his first advent, um, whenever he was asked, asked that question by the Pharisees, the prevailing view of the time was the more liberal view, okay? Um, and um, scholars and, and, and historians think this is why Herod Antipas got away with uh, his divorcing of his wife and his marrying his brother's wife, okay? So even though the Pharisees would have been considered more conservative, they were much more permissive. They were much more liberal as it related to divorce. They viewed marriage, as one commentator puts it, as a disposable contract, a disposable contract. And I think this is evidenced for us further in Matthew's account of what we're looking at this morning. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, Matthew gives us a little bit more insight. Verse 3 there, the Pharisees came to him, came to Jesus, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason, for just any reason. Now, if we were to illustrate this, right, we could say that this view of marriage is the equivalent of you signing up for some sort of membership. But as you're signing up for the membership, <coughs> you look at the fine print to see when you, can't, when you can cancel your membership or how difficult it would be for you. To, I, I do that when I sign up for a gym membership. 
I'm already thinking I'm going to get out of this at some point. It's not going to, this isn't going to last. That's the same mindset being applied here to the marital relationship. Okay, now, I think that the Pharisees were already acquainted with Jesus' teaching on marriage. Perhaps that's what he was teaching the multitude at the time, but we also know in his Sermon on the Mount that he esteemed marriage in a particular way. So I don't think his response to them is, is new information to them, right? Um, so they, they knew Jesus was at odds with the prevailing thought of the day, okay? He, he didn't take the liberal school of thought, but he was also not at odds with Moses. Jesus' view also isn't the conservative school of thought either, and I'll explain that a little bit more in a moment. But first, look at how Jesus answers. Go, go, back, go back to verse 3. <clears throat> and he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Okay, so remember, they're, they're, they're pointing to Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomy passage I read to you a moment ago, okay? Verse 5, And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So you see what Jesus is doing there? Or even his hermeneutical approach there. He used one passage of Scripture to interpret another passage of Scripture. Jesus interprets Deuteronomy, the passage that's being debated by the two schools of thought, okay, he, and he did that for the Pharisees in light of Genesis chapter 127, which is what he's quoting, in Genesis chapter 5, uh, 2, which he's quoting. And who, by the way, Moses authored both Genesis and Deuteronomy, okay? <clears throat> but by doing this, Jesus demonstrates what God built into the fabric of creation, right? He built two genders, Male and female, right? That shouldn't be controversial, but it is, right? He created a man and a woman to join together for the propagation of new families, independent of the families that they grew up in, right? Leaving and cleaving. And he demonstrates the one flesh nature of the husband and wife relationship, which again, we'll revisit in a few moments. He's further solidifying for us God's original Design and he asserts it as a command. What God has joined together, right? Who's the joiner? God is the joiner. Let not man separate. What God has brought together, let not man separate. To tinker with God's original design for marriage is to be in opposition to Almighty God. It's to be in opposition to Almighty God. That's what Jesus is saying in our passage. One commentator puts it like this. His opponents, Jesus' opponents, the Pharisees, ask what's permissible. Again, they're trying to find, you know, they're trying to major on the fine print. How can, how, how can we get out of marriage? Jesus points instead to what is commanded. He points to what is commanded. So Jesus answers their question by telling them, what God commands. And in doing this, he pushes back against this liberal train of thought that divorce was permissible for just any reason, right? I'm bored, or it's not what I thought it was going to be, or I'm not happy, or my expectations are not being fulfilled. You fill in the blank. Those are not legitimate reasons to get a divorce, Your creator, the one who created you, and the one who created marriage, says as much, right? And the way in which Jesus answers, masterfully answers, it puts the Pharisees on their heels because it puts them in a position to either be silenced or face 
rejecting God's original design. But that isn't all that Jesus does. Jesus does bring clarity to the Deuteronomy passage. I think he does answer this controversy about uncleanness. Excuse me. I think he defines uncleanness for us. We see that, again, I'm going to bring in Matthew's account. Look at Matthew chapter 19 for a moment. Verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to them, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. Matthew 19, 8 to 9. The only aspect of this Mark doesn't include is that phrase, except for sexual immorality. Now, I'm not sure why Mark leaves that out, but it's not in Mark's account. Now, I want to spend some time on this because I think it's important for us to have some clarity on the permissibility of divorce. The Greek word that Jesus uses in his answer uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew is the word pornea. It's the word pornea. Now, the word for adultery that's specifically translated as adultery is moikao. Okay, so we have pornea and then you have moikao, two different Greek words. So Jesus, he's distinguishing, and, and we see him use both words in the passage that I just read you in Matthew, okay? But we have Jesus distinguishing between what is translated in our English translations as sexual immorality and what is translated in our English translations as adultery. Okay, those two words are not synonyms for each other, in other words. Okay, the word Jesus uses as a grounds for divorce, pornea, it's a broader term. It's a broader term. It includes adultery, but it is not limited to adultery. This would put Jesus at odds with the conservative school of thought at that time as well. That word pornea that Jesus uses means morally objectionable sexual acts or or habitual sexual immorality. Okay, so morally objectionable sexual acts or habitual sexual immorality. So I think the English translation, sexual immorality, is about as good as we can get Uh, as a translation goes there. There are some sexual acts that are so heinous uh, and there's such a betrayal that upon engaging with them one time, there's grounds for divorce. Okay? I think also implicit in this teaching is that there are other sexual sins. And by the way, everyone struggles or has struggled with sexual sin in some way. But I think the the other meaning Jesus has in mind here is that if these sexual sins remain habitual, if there's a lack of repentance, that there is grounds for divorce. Let me just read a few more passages to help define sexual immorality a bit better. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 28. You've heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has committed, already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see what Jesus is doing there just right out of the gate. It's a good first passage for us to look at. And this is also a part of the Sermon on the Mount. But he locates sexual sin at the desire level. Okay, not just at the moment of external behavior, right? And so at the desire level is where every person at least has struggled with it in some sort of way, right? Our sexual desires that are not in the confines of the marital relationship, they're to be repented of. And again, biblical marriage is between one biological man and one biological woman. You may have strong feelings for someone that is not 
your spouse, but you have to repent at the heart level regarding those feelings. You may be sitting here this morning and you have strong feelings for someone of the same sex and maybe you think that not acting on those impulses is enough. It's not. We repent at the desire level. There must be repentance in our inner person, right? This is where all other forms of sexual immorality begin, by the way. It starts with the meditations of our heart. Jesus says this even about the way that we speak, Matthew 15, 18 to 19. But those things which proceed out of the mouth, they come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. And as as if we needed help, with our lust, right? In our day and age, there's, this has all been further complicated or accelerated by pornography and the instantaneous access that we have to it at any given moment. And it's, it's highly addictive. It's highly addictive. It has an impact on the brain that creates neurological pathways that condition us to return to it over and over and over again. It, and, and things get darker, as we do. I mourn what that does to image bearers. I mourn that. Just a couple of other passages to help us define sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Right, so we, we have lust, sinful-looking, sinful-desiring. We have fornications and adultery and sodomy and homosexuality. And we could fill this up with other things as well. Leviticus 18, 23. You shall not mate with any animal to defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Leviticus chapter 18, <clears throat> Verse 23, we can deduce that polygamy is sinful based on created order, right? All those polygamists that you see in the scripture, they were in rebellion. It was sin. It's not how God created things to be. So this term Jesus uses is broader and it would include any sexual activity not authorized by God. Some of these could warrant a divorce upon the first instance. Some of these sexual sins can warrant a divorce when a spouse refuses to repent over a a longer period of time. So I want us to see at least the nuances in, in the way that the word is used. Now, I want to spend the remainder of our time just teasing out a few things as it relates to this teaching of Jesus, which <clears throat> and, and these three things that I'm going to give you here, I, they, they certainly may be obvious to you this morning. But the first is this. Sexual immorality destroys lives and families. We know this. We know this, but we believe lies instead of truth. We're, we're led by our emotions. We're led by our feelings. We're led by our desires. And when we desire something other than God, things go sideways really quickly. And we may think we're seeing things right, but we aren't seeing things right. We often chase temporary fleeting pleasures to escape what's true, to escape what's reality. And again, we can pursue happiness in other places. When you're pursuing happiness in places other than the triune God, again, things will always go wrong. I've witnessed the devastation of sexual sin in the lives of too many people to count. It's heartbreaking. It's gut-wrenching. When I think of the devil being described as a devouring, roaring lion. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. I think primarily, this isn't what 
all that is in view, but I think primarily of sexual sin. It's a sin that's described as being one against your own body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit. For instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. It has a way of destroying a person, an image bearer, from the inside out. Okay? And those trapped in it find it immensely difficult to overcome. It's a sin that's likened to a, an addiction even by those who aren't Christians. Right? Studies are even demonstrating, for instance that the way an addiction to pornography um, uh, plays out is it changes your brain, chem- the chemistry of your brain. Right? That sexual sin, it, it robs you of everything. It robs you of your joy. It robs you of your happiness. Right? It eats at your soul until you're just hollow. You're just a shell of your former self. But it isn't just horrific for the individual that's trapped in this bondage. Sexual immorality has a devouring effect on the family, too. Not to mention, and this is beyond the scope of the, the, the sermon this morning, it has a devouring effect on society at large. We see that, right? right? But it defiles your marriage bed. Right? It's a breaking of the, the covenant commitment between a husband and a wife. Right? It hardens your children. And in some cases, your children can become enslaved to the very sin that you're habitually committing. It's contagious. It's contagious. Right? Especially fathers to sons. Right? If this is describing your present situation this morning, hear me. It's not the unforgivable sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. Right? You're not the only one struggling with it. Right? You're not the only one struggling with it sitting in the pew this morning. Right? So don't let the enemy make you feel isolated. Right? That's where it's going to flourish more. If you feel isolated, you go back into the darkness. The darkness is where sin flourishes. Don't stay in the darkness. Don't let the enemy make you feel that you're isolated. Don't feel like you're the only person that's struggling with it. Come out into the gospel light. But listen, it has to be eradicated from your life. It has to be eradicated from your life. I read 1 Corinthians chapter 6 a moment ago. <clears throat> You've heard us use that passage of Scripture in our confession of sin in our services before, right? One of the things that is so encouraging to me about that passage is that Paul calls the church of Corinth, because that is a letter to a church called Corinth, He calls the church of Corinth to repentance based on her fixed position in Jesus Christ. Look back at that passage. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That's not all of us. That's all of us, by the way. Verse 11, some of the sweetest words in Scripture. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul told the Corinthians that they could repent because they were washed, because they were sanctified, because they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God of our God. And the same is true for you this morning. If you're struggling, come into the light. Right? If you're a Christian, see that you're in right standing because of Jesus and repent in light of that right standing. If you're not a Christian, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you're a Christian this morning, hear me well. I know it's hard to hear me this morning. Try your best to hear me. You can repent. You can repent. It is possible. Right? The Bible says that you can, which means that God says that you can, and God knows better than you. Okay? You can walk away from this sin. It'll be hard, but you can do it. You've never resisted temptation. This is how Paul encouraged the Hebrew Christians. He said, you haven't resisted temptation to the point of shedding your blood. None of us have resisted temptation to that level. 
So look to Jesus. Thank God for forgiveness and resist temptation and be ruthless about your sin. If you're addicted to pornography, get rid of your electronic devices for a season. No excuse. That doesn't change your heart, but that certainly can give you the space to have your mind renewed by God through His Word, by His Spirit. If you're drifting in your faithfulness to your spouse, come clean. Come to light. I'm not saying that that is going to save your marriage, but that will save your soul. That will save your soul. If you're struggling with unnatural desires of homosexuality, come into the light. Find your happiness. Find your pleasure. Find your joy in the Lord. Don't be destroyed by your sexual sin. Don't allow those that you love to be destroyed by your sexual sin. Secondly, we can't be more righteous than Jesus in our view of marriage and divorce, by the way. All right, first, we note again, Jesus reminds us that God's design for marriage is lifelong. Okay? That's the ultimate standard. That's the command. All right, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this very reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. What God's joined together, let no man separate. Right? That's the standard. It doesn't shift. It doesn't change. Therefore, that's what we major on. Right? When we think about marriage, God's design for it, that's what should come to mind. That's the blinking sign that we should see. Okay? And that's what Mark's highlighting. Now, because we have Matthew's account of this teaching, we know that there's a type of sin that can leave one's marriage in such rubble such devastation that divorce is permissible and we must not be holier than Jesus on that either or think that we can. Now, this isn't a command from Jesus and that's an important distinction. Jesus isn't saying that if someone has committed sexual immorality that they must divorce. He says divorce is permitted in this case. I've seen... I've actually seen marriages restored. I've seen marriages that were devastated by long-standing sexual sin. One spouse repented, the other spouse remained faithful to the Lord and faithful to their 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 spouse even though they weren't any under any obligation to stay with their spouse. And I can testify that these families are healthier now. I've seen that happen, truly happen, and it's a testimony of the power of the gospel. Right? However, If you were to come to me and ask me if I thought, for instance, that a wife was morally obligated to stay married to her husband who's consumed by sexual sin, my answer would be no. It would be no. And my answer would be no because of this teaching of Jesus. So we see Jesus reassert God's design for marriage, and we see Jesus permit divorce in the case of sexual immorality. Now listen, Jesus says that outside of that, Right, if you get a divorce for any other reason, then you're breaking the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. That's what Jesus gets back to with his apostles in some house. He says in the house, his disciples asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife <coughs> and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, I know that some of us are thinking about Paul's instructions about a spouse being abandoned by their unbelieving spouse, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul says to let him or her leave. I can't get into that here because we don't have enough time to. But if a spouse leaves you, abandons you, this is beyond your control. It's beyond your control. Furthermore, the unbeliever that leaves you isn't concerned about how God created marriage. He's not concerned about God at all. But if your unbelieving spouse leaves, this isn't you initiating a divorce. It isn't you doing the leaving. This is the actions of someone against you, and you can't control their actions. So Paul's given a prescription, much like Moses was giving a prescription in Deuteronomy. Last thing we see, and then I'll be done. The church must lead the culture out of sexual immorality. The church must lead the culture out of sexual immorality at its root. Okay, and this is critical for us. At its root, when we boil it all down, 
Sexual immorality is a worship disorder. It's a worship disorder. Romans chapter 1 teaches us this. Look at verses 24 and 25 in Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness, interesting word choice, in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Those who are committed to their sexual immorality, who won't turn, are those who have turned and worshiped the creature instead of the creator. And the result of that is God giving one over to uncleanness, to the dishonoring of the body. You become like what you worship. Right? You become like what you worship. If you don't like who you are, look at what you're worshiping. Look at what you're spending your time obsessing about, thinking about. You become like what you worship. If you're consumed by sexual sin, it's because you're not following the Lord. If you're following the Lord, you'll become more like Him over time. But let me give you three ways we as a church have to be salt and light in a sexually immoral world. First is this. We need to see marriage as a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. Right? We have to, to see that again and to function that way in the nitty-gritty of life, right? in the comings and goings, in our exchanges, in the way we treat one another, in the way we speak to one another. Do you speak cruel and speak harsh to your spouse? Well, that's not a picture of Christ's relationship with his bride. Right? Are you consumed by sexual immorality? Christ is not an adulterer. But Paul says in Ephesians 5.31, This reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's the state of our marriage. It matters. And let me speak to husbands for just a minute. Husbands, you, you really do have to reflect Christ to your wife. You have to love her. You have to serve her and lead her in a redemptive, nurturing way. You have to be steadfast. Don't get discouraged so easily. If your chief aim is to honor Jesus in the way you love and lead your wife, you'll be energized and you'll persevere. You'll persevere. If your aim is accolades or if your aim is being recognized for your hard work, you're going to crash and burn. You're going to crash and burn. If you love your wife in such a way that you're looking for constant affirmation, you're being manipulative. You're being manipulative. Love and lead her selflessly. You get your cue from Christ. He's your savior. He's your example. He's your strength. You have every affirmation that you need in the words of the father when he said of the son, in you, I'm well pleased. In you, I'm well pleased. If you're in Christ, what was said of the son by the father is true of you. It's true of you. Be content with that. And get to work. Get to work. If you want the culture to repent of its sexual immorality, we, the church, have to cultivate God-centered marriages. Second, we lead through our own repentance, if that's not clear already. right? You have no strength to be salt and light when you're nurturing and harboring your own sins. Right? They're those in unrepentant sin, especially in unrepentant sexual sin, they have no strength. They have no longevity. Right? You can't begin to call a sexually immoral world to repentance unless you're truly walking in the light and seeking to repent by the grace of God yourself. Third, we help change this. We help lead the culture away from this by protecting our own children. We have to protect our own children. Listen, we live in a society that seeks to disciple your kids. And if you don't see that, you have to get your head out of the sand and look around. Right? It's in the shows that they watch. It's in the music that they listen to. 
It's on the social media platforms that they're connected to. It's in the stores that you shop at. It's in the Department of Education. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And your children are not missionaries. Your children are not missionaries. They aren't. They are children, little lambs, growing up in a world of wolves. And they have been given to you by God so that you can raise them to love Him and prepare them to be faithful Christians in a hostile world because we live in a hostile world. We live in a hostile world. Teach your children to know God, to love God, to fear God because this is the only way that they won't fear man. Teach them about God's good gift of marriage and everything that that means as they grow. Teach them what a boy and a girl is. Lean into the generalities if you have to. Protect and nurture your children in the gospel and prepare them for what they will face as adults. And then lastly... We have to herald a message of repentance and faith. Not only should we live in a holy way, not only should our marriages preach the gospel, but we need to herald a message of repentance and faith in a sexually immoral world. That's the way out of this bondage. That's the way out of all the confusion that we see in our society. The church in love must be the conscience of our society. God has positioned us that. So this morning, remember what marriage points to. Ask the Lord to help you highlight that in the way in which you live and herald the message of how Jesus laid down his life for his bride so that he might present her holy and blameless. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you for allowing us to spend time In your word, thank you, Lord, for sustaining my voice over the last 40 minutes or so. And God, I pray that you would help us as a church family, God, to see marriage as you have intended it. And Lord, that that would drive us deeper into who you are for us in Christ Jesus. Help us. We love you. We give you all praise and glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.